Awesome. Well, good morning, local church Dawson. Um, if you don't know me already, my name is Raymond Frank, and I am one of the student directors over at the Forsyth campus. And I'm really glad to be here with y'all this morning. I always get excited when I get to come up here uh, to Dawsonville. Um, I have been here before when you guys were back in the small auditorium on that side of the building, but this is actually my first Sunday here in your new auditorium, which is amazing. Um, it's different um, coming in here for a tour and uh, being here when the music's going and the lights are on and you guys are all in here. Y'all look fantastic, by the way, in your new auditorium. I love it. I love it. And so like I said, I am um, a youth director. Um, And so I actually got my start in ministry um, doing camp, doing summer camp ministry. And so I spent all four summers in college at a camp up in Cleveland, Georgia called Woodlands Camp. Uh, Any Woodlands campers in here? Anyone? No? Okay. Any parents? Okay, a few right here. Uh, Any parents of Woodlands campers? Okay, awesome. Amazing. Um, But yeah, I spent a lot of my time up at Woodlands Camp um, counseling, doing all the different things. And so this summer after my freshman year in college, I was a camp counselor. Um, for the first time. And for 12 weeks uh, that summer, I had a different group of kids every single week. Um, And so the first two weeks of the summer, uh, you are going through training camp. So you're growing spiritually, you're developing um, in all these ways, you're growing together as a staff, and they're teaching you how to do your job um, for that summer. They're teaching us counseling um, techniques and all these things. We're learning about different age groups of kids and what they need from you as far as like the hat you're wearing of like parent and coach and mentor and big brother and all these things while they're in your care for a week. And so um, the first week of the summer, you get done with training camp, and that last half of the week is a three-day camp for six to eight-year-old children called Peewee Camp. And so what a way to get your feet wet in counseling. Uh, Me as a freshman in college who has just sort of, not really, but maybe a little bit, uh, figured out how to take care of himself. Um, I'm now responsible uh, for six to eight-year-olds, um, like 13 of them at one time, um, who don't know how to, uh, you know, be humans, which is uh, kind of a fun thing. And so I remember it being crazy. Nothing they can teach you in training camp um, prepares you for something like that. Um, it's nice we can talk about it and all those things, but until that first group of kids walks through your cabin door, um, you have no idea what it's going to be like. And so the best way that I can describe it um, is it's like herding cats. It just doesn't happen. Uh, we walk from point A to point B, and it's like I've got three punching each other for no reason. I've got two with tummy aches because all they drank is uh, soda and candy um, and no water. Um, I've got one who wants to go home, who misses his mom. I've got one just who's wandering. Um, just wherever, um, because he doesn't know my name. He's probably with another counselor. Um, it's just, there's so many things that are happening all at one time. It's very chaotic. Um, one of my favorite things that we did, now that I think about it, which is kind of ridiculous, is we would let these kids be responsible for cleaning their cabin, um, which went exactly how it sounds. Um, if you've got young ones at home and they have chores, I mean, have you ever seen a six-year-old try to sweep? It's, it, nothing is getting clean. Nothing at all. Um, it's like I get up in the middle of the night, walk from my bed to the bathroom, and it's like I'm at the beach. Like there's just sand and dirt, and you feel everything. Oh, it's disgusting. It's terrible. 
the windows and mirrors, they're more smudged and streaked than when we started. It's like I handed you the Windex and the paper towels, and it's somehow more dirty now after you've cleaned it. So fantastic. And you can't get mad because there's like, they're just so itty-bitty, and they're so cute. And it's just like, oh, what are you going to do? And so I remember we would go to staff meetings in the morning, and you'd trust the kids to clean. So you'd have people walk the halls and monitor the kids. But, you know, for the most part, they're in there trying to clean. And you as a counselor can't even listen in the staff meeting because you're worried about your kids. And then you're running full sprint back to your cabin. I've got coffee poured all over the front of me because I'm trying to get back, make sure my kids haven't burned down the cabin. And so it's hectic. It's chaotic. It's exactly um, how you could picture it in your mind. And so I remember one day, I think it's like the second day of this camp, I've been with these kids for just over 24 hours and I'm at my wits end and I'm losing my mind and I can't get them to listen or do anything or line up in a straight line. We're trying to get from somewhere to go to lunch and I'm I'm at the edge. Like, it's, it's ridiculous, and I can't do it. I start to second-guess everything. It's like, why am I even here this summer? How am I going to do this all summer if I can't get the little kids to listen to me? Like, high schoolers are going to walk all over me later this summer. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, having this crisis of just, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. I mean, I know God called me here this summer, but what am I supposed to do? And I'm just having this crisis, this just existential crisis of what I'm even doing here. And I remember my head counselor, Brett, um, in that time, comes over to me, and he says, like, Raymond, just take a minute, go outside, breathe, I've got this. And sure enough, I don't know what Brett did, but he walked so confidently into my crisis and into the chaos that ensued, and sure enough, the kids are lined up, ready to go to lunch, all the things, I have no idea what he did, but he did it. And I remember we go to lunch, and he pulls me aside, and he comes, he's like, Raymond, hey, you are supposed to be here. You belong here. You can do this, I promise. And he was just such a voice of calm and just confidence as he walked into my crisis. And, of course, that's lighthearted, and we, and we laugh, and my crisis wasn't really a crisis. You know, it was just a little bit overwhelming at the time, and it was just chaotic where I was just about to lose it. And um, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't really a big crisis at all. And, but I understand this morning there may be some of you here who are maybe going through something a little bit more serious in your lives right now. Maybe some real crisis, whatever that looks like. For you, maybe you're struggling with something or or going through something right now in a tough time in your life. And if that's not you today, I can promise if you're not in what you feel like is a crisis right now, maybe someday you will be. That's just life. That's just how things are. And so whatever that looks like for you today, what I want to talk about this morning is this idea of having confidence in crisis. This idea of walking through crisis with confidence. What does it look like to have confidence in times of crisis? So as I was getting ready for today and Brian telling me what y'all were doing this summer, y'all were spending summer in the Psalms, which I love. I love the book of Psalms. And what I really love about Psalms is just the wide range of human emotions that you get across the Psalms. You get these psalms of joy and thanksgiving being poured out to God. You get um, these songs of praise. Um, you get to see everything, really, real human emotions. But one thing that I love, you get to see also these things called psalms of lament. Psalms of lament. And lament is this idea of expressing deep sorrow or grief or regret. And then these beautiful poems and hymns we get throughout the psalms, there's expressing human struggles. 
And so today, the psalm we're going to be in, Psalm 77, is one of those psalms. In fact, the psalms of lament are actually the largest category of psalms. They make up one-third of the entire book. So you got 150 chapters in psalms. A third of them, that's psalms of lament right there. And so there are these poetic hymns meant to be sung to God. And they deal with issues that were and still are central to the life of faith for the individual and the community of faith as a whole. And so these lament psalms express these intense emotions, these real human struggles, and this anguish of a heart experienced by the people of Israel as they lived out their faith in the Old Testament. So the men and women of the Old Testament are as real as you and I are today. They danced, they sang, they rejoiced, they laughed, they argued and confessed to one another, and they lamented and mourned. They expressed emotions to God in prayer just as you and I do today. So when we encounter difficult things in our lives or struggles in our lives, having a need for God's rescue and salvation and help, the Psalms of Lament are a great place to turn. So if you flip there, we're going to be in Psalm 77 today, like I said. And like I mentioned, this is a psalm of lament here in that category. And it's written by a man named Asaph. It's written by a man Asaph. And as Asaph, if you can imagine, um, like what he'd be today, he's probably a wor- like a, the worship leader of today. And so he was worship leader back then, essentially. He was a leader in the tabernacle choir. He served in the court. Um, He was a musician and poet, and he was an extremely gifted individual, which is the cool thing. And the cool thing about Asaph is that he understood where his gift came from. He understood that he had this gift, and he used his music to praise the Lord and to just bring his word to a needy world, which is really cool. And so we're going to jump in Psalm 77 right here in verse one, it says this. It says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refuse to be comforted. I think of God. I groan. I meditate. My spirit becomes weak. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I'm troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night, I remember my music. I meditate in my heart. My spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject me forever and never again show favor? Has his faithfulness, faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? So right here, we see Asaph is going through some sort of struggle. We don't know what it is. It doesn't name specific. He is going through something really And it's not specific, it's general enough for you and I to be able to put our own circumstances and crisis and struggle in where Asaph is, perhaps empathize with him just a little bit. But he's going through this struggle, and he's doing everything that we would think is the right thing to do. Right here in these first few verses, he's faced with this crisis, and this is his response. The first thing that he starts to do in his time of crisis is that he wrestles. Asaph starts to wrestle with God. And so what I love about this is that Asaph does what we as Christians 
know and think that the right thing to do is we've been, maybe it's something we've been told to do when we're struggling or we have seen other people do or other people have told us or we've even told someone else to start to do this. The thing is, his response is exactly right. In his time of crisis, in his time of trouble, his response is correct. He leans in and he embraces God. He leans in and embraces God in the midst of his crisis. You can see it. Look what he's doing. He's praying aloud to God and not just praying. He's like, hey, I'm praying to God and I know he hears me. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. He's crying out to God. He's praying continuously. He's not shying away. He's seeking the Lord continuously. His hands are lifted in praise and in worship constantly. It says all night long he thinks of God and he meditates on God. He even searches his own memories um, about God. And sometimes I think what happens is we get in the situations and we're doing this and Asaph is doing this and nothing changes. And I think we have this formula in our minds that, hey, there's a way that this is supposed to go. We pray, God answers, and things change, and problem is solved. You know, Asaph, we're reading, and I think everything that I'm reading here, in in my mind, Asaph is holding up his, his end of the deal here. He cries out to God. He seeks God when he's in trouble. He stretches out his hands without wearing. He's in trouble, and his response is correct. He keeps reaching out to God. And you expect now that Asaph has done his part, it's now time for God to step in, hold up his end of the bargain, and maybe answer Asaph's prayers. But that's not what we see happen. I think while he's wrestling with God, I think he shows us two things. And the first one is that God is not a vending machine. God is not a vending machine. You know, we think about a vending machine. We put our dollar into the machine. Um, we press the button. We wait for our bag of chips. The little thing uncurls and the chips start to drop and then you get caught up against the glass. And, you know, it's not dropping. And so we bang on and we shake the machine waiting for it to give us, you know, what we ordered and that thing. And the idea is the same thing happens with God. You know, we see a vending machine and we see it's supposed to work. It's supposed to deliver our order. It's supposed to give me what I wanted. The thing is, God isn't like that. God isn't a genie in a bottle waiting to fulfill our requests. He's he's God. And sometimes the fact that we do all the right things doesn't guarantee we're always going to get the results that we want. We're not always going to get the results. We're not always going to look at God and be like, hey, this is what he should do. And that happens even in prayer. The second thing I think Asaph shows us in his wrestling is the fact that it's okay to be honest. You know, Charles Spurgeon is a very famous preacher and theologian. Maybe you've heard that name before. Maybe you've heard him quoted. Maybe you've read his commentaries. But he's a very famous preacher um, from the 1800s. He preached in London, England. And he is just really known for his awesome preaching, but also his, like, sense of humor. And he's just this epic hero of the faith. And one thing about Charles Spurgeon that might surprise you a little bit is that his entire life he struggled with depression. And his health was, it was very poor. And it continued to just deteriorate and deteriorate until he died in 1892. And he was in constant pain and sometimes he could barely even walk or write or anything. He had these debilitating headaches. He would often have to take time away from his ministry for an extended amount of time to just recover. 
just to be able to have the energy to do what he was doing. And if anyone was familiar with just the suffering and crisis that can happen to us in life, it was, it was Charles Spurgeon. And so when Spurgeon studied this psalm, he could really relate to it. And so when I was reading and preparing for this message and reading through Psalm 77 and studying it, I, I read his commentary on it, and he says this. He says, Some of us know what it is, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment and our spirit in anguish. Alas, my God, the writer of this expedition, uh, exposition well knows what thy servant Asaph meant. For his soul was familiar with the way of grief, deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions. My spirit knows full well your awful glooms. And he, he says this, which I think is just so powerful. He says, there are times with the brightest-eyed Christians when they can hardly brush the tears away. Y'all, it is hard to express that level of honesty. It's hard enough to express that level of honesty to ourselves, let alone other people and let alone to God. That he, anyone that understands what Asaph is going through here, it's Charles Spurgeon. He says even then it is so hard to face that level of honesty. So maybe you walk into church or to work or wherever you are and, and people ask you how you're doing and maybe you're struggling with something. They ask how your situation or your circumstances are and you answer maybe without thinking. You're like, oh no, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right or I'm not too good right now, but hey, I'm trusting God so I'm sure it'll all work out and it'll be fine. But here, Asaph is giving us permission to be like really honest with ourselves and say, hey, maybe I've been praying for something right now. I've been praying, but to be honest, it just doesn't feel like God is listening. Hey, I'll be honest, I've been going through a hard time, and no matter how much I pray or seek God, I'm just not feeling any better. That's what Asaph is going through here as he wrestles with God. And the thing is, what I want you to know today, if that's you, that God can handle our honesty. He's big enough, he's strong enough, he can handle our honesty. The thing is, uh, Asaph continues, he asks these questions, he begins to question everything. He asks these rhetorical questions, he says, will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Has his love stopped entirely? Is, you know, has, is he not fulfilling his promises anymore? Has God forgotten to be gracious to me? Is in anger, is he withholding his compassion from me? He's questioning everything. So also in verse 10, it culminates, he says, So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. And so he's wrestling, he's questioning, he's doubting even a little bit. But the thing is, while he's wrestling, he doesn't let go. In his wrestling, Asaph does not let go of God. And then we see right here from verse 10 to verse 11, the tone in this psalm starts to shift. And his confidence starts to build. He says this in verse 11. He says, I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. The thing is, he wrestles. And then he remembers. Asaph wrestles and then he remembers. 
When I was a freshman in college, I was at uh, the Georgia Southern University. Um, go Eagles. Anyone, any Eagles in here? A few. Awesome. Hail Southern. Love that. Harvard of the South, best school in the state. That's all I had to say about that. Amazing. So I was a freshman in college at Georgia Southern University, and I went into college with what I thought was my plan for my life. And so sometimes we know how that goes, but um, I entered my first semester um, really enjoying biology in high school. I was really good at it. I felt like I was awesome at it. felt like an awesome, nice continuation um, into college. And so my idea was, hey, I'm majoring in biology, and I'm going to be on the pre-PA track. I'm going to study medicine, and we're going to get out of school. We're going to go PA school, and then we're going to make money uh, was my goal, was my idea in my brain. And so I was enjoyed biology. I was excited to pursue a career in it. Um, and I entered this program and I walk into my first biology class um, in that first exam and I walk out with an A. And I'm like, here we go. Easy ride. Four years. I got this. this the confidence is overflowing at this point. And at some point in that semester, I don't know what happened, but the wheels started to come off. The dream started to fade a little bit, because after that first biology exam, I think I scored no higher than a C on any of my exams. In biology and in chemistry, and for anyone wanting to study medicine, that's probably not a really good track record. And so it wasn't because I wasn't trying. It wasn't because of some of the things when you enter college, you're distracted by other things. I put in so much effort. I was at nights in the library, hours and hours and hours. I got tutoring. I sought that out. I tried everything. I even went as far as to, you know, spend nights in the library preparing for tests sometimes, would fall asleep in the library, wake up, and continue studying in the library. And no matter what I did, it felt like nothing clicked. Nothing clicked my grades-wise. I'm sitting halfway through the semester. Actually, semester is almost over, and my highest grade is an A in English. And I'm taking biology and chemistry and other courses that are pertaining to my major, and I've got this C average. I'm in danger of losing Hope Scholarship my first semester in college. Nothing is clicking. I'm having this crisis of what I'm supposed to do with my life now that I can't do this for four years. I can't keep this up. And I don't know what to do. For a long time, I, I was in my college ministry, and, and I had, of course, grown up in camp ministry and all those things, and so I was feeling the, kind of this tug on my heart of God calling me into ministry, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what that looked like, and so I was struggling so badly, and of course, you're, you're about to lose hope. Your fear is, you know, your parents are going to pull you home, and so at one point, I'm, I'm, I'm rock bottom here grade-wise, and I realize I have to call my parents and tell them what's going on, and I am dreading this conversation. I'm dreading this conversation. I, I, I want to have an answer with them. I know I want a change, but I'm not sure what that change is supposed to look like. I want to have an answer, but I have none. And so I'm dreading this conversation. I'm, I'm losing sleep over it. I'm, I'm going, and I, I, I need to call my parents. And I finally, you know, work up the courage to call them. And I remember dialing phone. I can show you on campus where I was when I had this conversation. And I go to call my mom, and... I'm, I'm just going to pause this there for a second. This is the thing. So I, I, you know, of course, I've been around my parents my whole life. I know who my parents are and the people that they are. And I'm going to brag on them for a second, and it's going to be uncomfortable for them because they're in the room today, but I don't care. I have the microphone. They don't. So uh, I need to tell you that I have been extraordinarily blessed by God by having the parents that I have, that they have always been so present and so supportive and so loving 
And I promise you, y'all, as a kid, there were probably some times where I was very much a challenge to love. And my entire life, they have loved me and supported me unconditionally. Every practice, every game, every concert, whatever it was, they were there. And I know this about my parents. And this is in my mind, and I know this, but despite that fact, I was terrified to make this phone call for whatever reason. In my mind, I'm like, hey, what if they won't support my decision? What if they're disappointed in me? What if they don't understand? What if I upset them? And I finally work up the courage to dial that number, and I call my mom, and she answers. And everything just kind of comes out like word vomit. Like, I had no plan. I just, this is what I'm feeling. I need to get it out, and she needs to know. And I'm like, Mom, I hate everything. I hate all my classes. I hate what I'm doing. I can't do it anymore. I don't know what to do. I feel the Lord calling me to ministry, but I don't know what that looks like. And I'm sorry. I wish I had an answer for you. I know that's not maybe where the money is. I know you want me to be good and be prepared for life, but I don't know what to do. And I finally stopped talking, and there's some silence for a second. She's taking it all in. And I'll never, ever forget that conversation because afterwards it's just, she says, okay, we support you. No matter what, we support you. And she goes into, she's just like, tears come to my eyes. Because in that moment, she's like, hey, if Georgia Southern is not where you're supposed to be, we'll get you where you're supposed to be. If you don't know what your major is supposed to be, we'll help you find that. And whatever you need from us, you have it. We want to support you and help you course tears come to my eyes and you know it's just amazing thing and because of that conversation I felt confident to finally step into what I felt like God was calling to me in life and I can say without that without their support without their love I would not be where I am today I would not be on this stage in front of you today it had been for that conversation and when I hung up the phone I felt immediate relief but I also felt so so silly I felt so stupid because I knew who my parents were I'd known the ways they had been good to me and loved me and supported me throughout my life, but for whatever reason, I just couldn't see that. And here's the thing, y'all. I think Asaph does the same thing. That he turns that corner in verse 11 and he remembers. And he remembers who his heavenly father is. He remembers who his heavenly father is. He remembers truth about who he knows his God to be. He remembers what he knew about God and he thought of all the ways that he could possibly recount and remember God working in his life and the lives of his people. I like to imagine Asaph reflecting on all the things that God has done in the lives of the people of Israel that he remembers God delivering them from slavery out of Egypt. He remembers God providing for them in the wilderness with manna from heaven and water from the rock. He remembers that God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. He remembers that God shut the mouths of lions for Daniel. He remembers God bringing dry bones to life. And sometimes, y'all, we need to remember the goodness and faithfulness of God in our lives. He was faithful yesterday. He's faithful today, and he's going to be faithful tomorrow. And through that transition, through him remembering, he wrestles and he remembers. And we see that confidence in his crisis build and build and build. And he goes on, he talks about in verse 13, he says, God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. 
And we just get this beautiful description of God's power. He says, the water saw you, God. The water saw you, and it trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwinds. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water. But your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See what he does here. He wrestles. He remembers. And then he worships. He wrestles, he remembers, and then he worships. Once he wrestled and embraced God, he starts to remember the ways that God was good and faithful to him in his life. And those memories, those facts that he knows about God, turn his heart to worship and praise. That those memories and facts that he knew about God made their way into his heart, and his only response was worship. You know, he continues, we get that beautiful description of God parting the waters of the Red Sea. And the thing is, after that in verse 20, the psalm just ends. That's it. After verse 20, there's no more of Psalm 77. It just ends there. But one thing I want us to understand is that the psalm ends after that, and we we don't get a resolution to what we see Asaph going through. Or what he's dealing with. There's no perfect ending with this big bow on top. It's not a sort of like sitcom psalm where, hey, everything's resolved at the end of this episode. And, hey, next week we're at Psalm 78 and we're going on to that. And that's got its whole new set of problems, but nothing changes. We don't know whether God answers Asaph's prayers. We don't know if anything changes for Asaph. But the thing is, Asaph worships anyway. The cool thing is that Asaph chooses to give God praise before the provision. He worships God and he continues on through his crisis and out the other side with more confidence than when he went in. thing is about our lives, y'all, is they're not linear. The timeline of our lives is not a perfect straight line. If we were to look at a graph of our lives, it's not always going to be up and to the right. It's not always going to be positive. In fact, our lives probably look a lot more like this. That we live lives full of hills and valleys. One pastor that I really love to listen to is a guy named Craig Rochelle, and he describes this idea of hills and valleys so beautifully. He says this. He says, we enjoy God on the mountaintops. When we're on the mountaintops and we're experiencing fully the goodness of God and things are great, we really enjoy God on those mountaintops. But let me tell you, boy, do we get to know him in the valleys. He becomes so real to us and so present to us in the valleys. And the thing is today, I don't know where you are today, whether you're on a hill or you're on a valley. But I want to address both groups in the room this morning. For those of you in the valley today, 
I want to challenge you and I want to push you and I want you so hard to try to remember today. Of course, I want you to wrestle with God. I want you to wrestle and not let go. I want you to seek him and praise him and worship him even in your crisis. I don't want you to let go, but then I want you to remember. I want you to recount and remember all the ways. What can you hold on to? Where in your life have you seen God show up? Where in your life have you experienced his goodness and his faithfulness? And what can you start to recount today? In this moment today, as you leave this place today. So where you can continue to walk through your crisis and out the other side with more confidence than you went in. And for those of you on the mountaintop on the hill today who things are good, you're experiencing God in cool ways and just things in your life are awesome. What I want you to do is I want you to remember these moments. Lock them into your mind, write them on your heart. Remember these moments where you're experiencing the goodness and faithfulness of God in a very real and tangible way because one day, let me tell you, you might find yourself in the valley. And I want you to be able to walk through that valley with confidence. I want you all to have the confidence to wrestle with God and not let go. I want you to have the confidence to remember the ways he's been good and faithfulness in your life and trust that he's gonna be faithful again. And I want you to have the the confidence to worship. Not for what he can do for you, not for what he's done, but for purely who he is. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you so much that you've brought each and every one of these people here this morning. God, I pray that now that they realize more than ever how much you love them, Father. That whatever they walk through through life, God, you are right there with them. God, whatever they're going through today, whether they're on a mountaintop or a valley, Father, I pray that they know that you are with them. God, even when it doesn't feel like it, that their prayers do not go unanswered, God, that they continue to seek you in times of crisis, Lord, that they have the courage to remember the ways that you've been faithful to them, God. Bring those moments to their mind. God, and I pray today that they would worship. Worship you, God, not for what you can give us, God, but for purely who you are. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your heavenly name I pray. Amen.